0: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily, selected as Best of 2018 by Apple. Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. It's producer Rachel Kanya here. And on today's episode, we have Eric Voorhees, the founder and CEO of Shapeshift a company that allows for the seamless transformation of cryptocurrency assets. Through his work with Shapeshift,
1: Eric has gained a unique perspective on how the worlds of traditional and crypto finance interact, and more often than not, how they clash. In this interview, Chad and Eric sit down to discuss how Shapeshift is working to decentralize the banking system. They also talk about how cryptocurrency can be used to fight inflation and the most recent crypto trends Eric's excited about for the future. Stay tuned for more from Eric Voorhees of Shapeshift.
0: Welcome back to Mission Daily. Today's guest needs no further introduction. Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on.
0: So Eric, everyone remembers that first moment where they heard rumors that some magical thing called Bitcoin or the blockchain existed, and it was a real thing, and it had been created by this guy named Satoshi. What was that moment like for you? When did you first hear the rumors? And take me back to that when you discovered Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, well, so I, d- I didn't learn about it through the story of, uh, of Satoshi so much as just through a Facebook post from a friend. This was back in May, early May of 2011. And the Facebook post was a link to some article that talked about this this Bitcoin thing that had appreciated in value by like 300% in the last six months. And um, being a student of financial markets, like nothing ever moves like that unless it's a, a scam or some sort of weird anomaly. And so I I clicked it and read about Bitcoin and then clicked another article and read about it. And by the third article, I realized this was something special and absolutely fell down the rabbit hole and have been utterly and hopelessly addicted ever since.
0: So you mentioned rabbit hole. The best thing about discovering, in my own view anyways, in discovering new technologies or new creations that existed in the world that you just didn't know about before is the discovery process, the vetting process, the getting involved in the community. that Those are all so exciting for me. So I would love to hear more about those early days in your world. What were they like? What were some of the books, papers, or articles, or discussions like in the beginning?
1: Yeah, well, so back then, Bitcoin was about $5. You know, very few people in the mainstream had even heard the word. Uh, so the place where I learned about it was really the the bitcointalk.org forum's um, there's a lot of discussion, but really it was so, so niche. Very few people at all were were interested in it. It had just had some, its first mainstream article had just come out and the, the whole drama around WikiLeaks and the donations to WikiLeaks getting cut off by the payment processors and how Bitcoin could be, you know, theoretically used as an alternative was kind of a hot topic uh, that month. I just got really interested in it, but like back then it wasn't, it wasn't a cool thing to be interested in. It was just very, very weird and obscure Mm -hmm. and any cynical onlooker had every reason to be cynical about it. Like it had not proven itself nearly as much as it has today. That whole process of learning and getting interested was really kind of a process of checking my own self doubt and skepticism and trying to move through that and, and try to understand something that I felt was, you know, one of the most important inventions that had ever occurred in human history. That's how it felt. While at the same time, realizing that almost no one knew about it or, or agreed with me, it's a weird position to be in. Cause you, you kind of have to have a bit of a, I don't know, out, out of context experience. And I, I had never really um, experienced that before.
0: And those experiences, they can be lonely. They can be uh in some cases, ego shattering or paradigm shifting, would you go so far as to say that it was like, you know, paradigm shifting for you or did it make you more excited about the world and possibilities? Did it make you more pessimistic? Yeah. I'm I'm curious as to how the discovery of Bitcoin and the blockchain affected your mindset and what you thought was possible in the world.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I try not to be an overly confident person i try to always have humility and, and skepticism you know especially about myself and so when you when you come across something that you feel is so powerful and so good and you just fall in love with it you kind of have that question of like am i just crazy or right. am i or am i really seeing something before most of humanity has seen it which which is just statistically very unlikely so yeah it's it's disorienting it absolutely made me far more excited about the world i mean i up until that point, I'd been very interested in, in monetary theory and economics, and um, I was dismayed uh, at the state of the world and, and how money was created and used, and I didn't have a solution. I didn't know what would how that would ever be solved, and it was kind of uh, always at the back of my mind something that was a little depressing to me, and when I discovered Bitcoin that got solved, there was now a path to this horrible issue being, being fixed, and so that was very... Um, very encouraging and very exciting.
0: Yeah. And I think that this is a great segue into talking about currency de- debasement. So for everyone that's listening right now, there are currencies that we use, there are prices for things, and you know there are things like inflation. And we view these phenomena as something that is inevitable sometimes. And in a recent interview on the Unchained podcast, you talked about currency debasement. And you said something along the lines of it's the greatest scam perpetuated on mankind and crypto is going to change all that. Could you kind of expand on that and maybe just share with people why you used uh, such a harsh word in, in terms of like, it's calling something the greatest scam is uh it's a pretty big claim.
1: Yeah. Um, and I wasn't trying to be superfluous. I, I honestly think it is the greatest scam ever, ever perpetuated. So basically, you know, most, most of your Listeners are aware of this concept of inflation. They're aware that like prices tend to rise over time, but probably most of them kind of think that that's inevitable. They kind of think that that's kind of just what, what markets do. Like the price of bread kind of goes up by a few percent each year and that's normal. And they remember seeing prices when they were a kid that were lower than they are today. And that's just kind of how things are. Some people sort of understand that it's connected to, to money supply and, and currency but people don't really take time to think about what's actually happening. What's actually happening is that the reason prices rise generally across an economy is because currency is getting continually created and that causes the value of the currency to fall relative to those other goods, which means that the price of those goods rises. And the the horrible trick is that people think that the good is getting more expensive rather than realizing that the, Think they are trading for that good, the money is getting less less valuable, and it's not hard to understand when you just take a you know a little while to think about that. But but so few people do, and the reason it's a scam is because this is happening intentionally and at the guidance of the people who are in charge of the money supply. So in the U.S. and you know most countries in the world have central banks. The central banks, uh, along with their correspondent banks, create money out of thin air. They little, literally just enter it into their computer systems, and now they have a billion dollars or a trillion dollars that didn't exist before. And then that gets you know, sent out or lent out or, or spent on things. And that's great for those institutions and groups that are close to that money spigot. They get that money before the general price levels throughout the economy have risen, but by the time normal people get that extra supply of money, you know, eventually it kind of trickles into, the, into their wages going up a little bit or, or into something that they see. But that tends to happen at the tail of that process where they, they've already been paying the higher prices around the economy before they then see a, a higher price paid on their wage. Uh, and that's where the scam is. The, the scam is that a group of people are able to create money out of thin air, obtain assets with that new money. Uh, And the rest of society, anyone who's holding that currency, pays little fractions every year for that to continue. Most people would be outraged if every year, one or two or 3% of their bank account was just stolen from them through something called inflation. But that's exactly what's happening. But instead of the number in their bank account going down, the things that they can buy with the number in their bank account uh, is going down. And so if people would understand it in that way, I think they'd be a lot more open to realizing that maybe there's a better alternative.
0: And I think to most people and the public at large are just not aware that there is not oversight on the central banks. Like there's not, central banks aren't open to be audited. There isn't uh, a democratic process to regulate them or for the public to weigh in. Could you talk maybe a little bit about that and what your thoughts are on uh, information sharing and, you know, what is a central bank? Cause it's a pretty, Mysterious institution that has not always been a part of America. And many people who built America were pretty skeptical of central banks.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think I would disagree a little with the characterization that there's no oversight. The central bank is there because the government wants it to be there, it exists gotcha, yeah. because there's this partnership between the central bank and the government where both of them benefit from it. When the central bank creates money, it often buys government bonds. Uh, what that means is that the government is always spending more than it takes in in taxes, and so it has to issue debt. Some of that debt gets bought by private parties, and some of that debt gets bought by the central bank, purchased with money that they created out of out of thin air. Generally, this is called quantitative easing. So the, the federal government, at least in the U.S., absolutely has oversight over the Federal Reserve. It exists because the government wants it there, and if the government didn't want it there, it, it would not exist. So it's not really something that is outside of the control of government it is something that exists purely because the government is there to establish it i think if you look at the the history of how money has worked in the us for most of us history there weren't there wasn't a central bank it was a highly contentious issue there were a couple central banks created in the 19th century that were quickly dissolved as well and it wasn't until i think 1912 or 1913 that the current federal reserve was was created and even after that, it wasn't as bad as today because back then money was essentially just gold and silver. It was There was paper currency, but it was a certificate to get gold and silver. So the ability for the central bank, even back then, to just inflate the money supply at whim had a constraint. It was limited. But as of 1971, there is no gold backing the dollar. And so now it can be created by this group out of thin air as much as they want. And so some people tend to think that the dollar has been around for hundreds of years. In reality, it's only been around for about 50 years, since 1971, when it became a fiat currency.
0: That's a really important point to to bring up as well. So the dollar became a fiat currency, roughly, you know, 71. What has the trajectory of the dollar been on, in your view, uh, since then?
1: Well, essentially, throughout most of American history, up until 1913, the value of dollars remained very constant. So the the price level throughout the economy from the creation of the country in 1776 up until 1913 was was roughly flat. So bread would cost the same in the early 20th century as it did at the end of the 18th century, which is crazy. But that was actually more like the normal state of things. Um, and ever since the Federal Reserve was created, the value of the dollar has has precipitously declined something around 98 or 99% since 1913. And every every year it loses a few percent. And our generation is just kind of used to that. We haven't known anything else.
0: What do you feel like would happen if we were able to uh, stabilize the value of a dollar or increase the value of a dollar again? Is there, is there a scenario in which a fiat currency like the dollar could be redeemed? And do you see a scenario where that happens or is it an inevitable decline from here?
1: I think it's an inevitable decline but not because it couldn't be stopped. I mean the the Federal Reserve and the government could. They have the power to stop printing money or or to simply keep the lo- the money supply stable. They could do that. They never will because their incentives are to do otherwise. But they could do that. And if they did, then the dollar would tend to remain roughly stable. You know, it might gain a, a percent or lose a percent every year, but it would stay pretty much flat that would be that would be great that would end the the fiat debasement scam part of things but there's still another big problem with fiat currency which is that because it's centrally controlled people don't really have sovereignty over their own money when you have money in a bank you don't really control that at all first of all the money's not really there most people know that but second of all it can be taken from you without without your consent, without due process, in other countries in the world especially, it can just be stolen right out of your bank account. The bank account can, can freeze it, can prevent you from sending payments. Um, you really don't own or control your money, you just have access to it at the permission of the bank. Most people have no problem with that because they trust that system. But I think there's something profoundly wrong with, with the fact that people aren't able to have sovereignty over their own wealth. Most people spend their entire lives working and chasing after money, saving for it. And they they spend their most precious resource, their time on earth, obtaining money for for all sorts of things, for their living expenses, for their health, for their children, for their families, for their entertainment and leisure. Um, And the fact that after spending your life on these things, you aren't able to actually have sovereignty over what you obtain from doing so, I think there's something really, really wrong with that. What was so magical about Bitcoin to me when I first learned of it was that it finally Provided sovereignty over one's own money, which is just an incredible attribute, and not only sovereignty over your money, but actually a, cl- a clear inflation schedule that that is set at the beginning that can't be debased by any group of people, and so those two things combined make Bitcoin simply a better form of money than fiat. And so, you know, even my prediction back in 2011 when I got involved was that over time at the margins it would become more and more popular, more and more widely used, and ultimately it would likely replace fiat currencies altogether. But that will be, you know, a a 20 or 30 or 40 year process.
0: And before we jump into some of your more recent projects and your blog, there are some essays on there that are excellent that I would recommend everyone to go check out and read. Before we jump into that, let's talk about some of the projects that you first launched in the Bitcoin space. So Satoshi Dice was one of your first projects and at its peak, I believe it was responsible for uh, more than half of all Bitcoin transactions on earth. And it was with that project, you kind of explored an idea of something called provable fairness. And I would love to hear you talk about provable fairness and why the idea of a more fair society might not be out of reach.
1: Yeah. so, So Satoshi Dice was a very simple sort of casino gambling game started as a side project and really got out of control. And, and yeah, up, up through mid-2013, it was more than, more than half of all Bitcoin transactions on Earth were to or from Satoshi Dice. And basically, the, the reason it was so cool was twofold. One is people from anywhere in the world could interact with this service, the simple casino game, it didn't matter what country they were in. It didn't matter their age. It didn't matter their gender or national identity or race or anything. The protocol did not care. does not care who you are. And I, I found that to be just very egalitarian and, and beautiful. But two, Satoshi Dice used something called provable fairness, which I'm not a mathematician or a cryptographer, so I can't tell you the cool ways that this actually happens. But essentially what it can do is... Um, you can prove that the odds of a bet are what, what we said they were. So if we say the odds of you winning are X percent, you can prove mathematically that that's true. That was really cool because anyone who's gone to a, a casino anywhere, um, there's always this feeling in the back of your mind, like, well, first of all, they, they rarely ever tell you what the odds are. But Great. even if they did, you wouldn't really know. Like if a slot machine told you the odds were a certain amount, you don't really know. There's no way to verify that. It's ripe with people misleading each other and, and being fraudulent. The casino industry has dealt with that for a long time. So Bitcoin and cryptography basically allowed a way to prove odds to a user who was using the service. And the person didn't need to know who I was. They didn't need to know where I was. They didn't need to trust me at all. They could just trust in math to, to make these bets and that they would, they would pay out in the way that they were supposed to so both those, both those aspects, the borderless nature of it and the, the provable fairness, I think th- that was why Satoshi Dice became such a success so quickly was because it was just an example of the potent power of, of cryptocurrency generally. It couldn't have existed without Bitcoin. And so it was just an, a really early good use case and an example of what it could do.
0: Yeah. And I think that the idea of provable fairness is something that a lot of industries could benefit from. I mean, obviously, because... Anytime you have a game that I think Jean Piaget popularized the research that if you have a game and you're able to make it more voluntary, you expand the number of people that are interested and going to give it a try to basically play it. Uh, And anytime you have a, a game, a system, or an offering for people that becomes more voluntary over time, I think it naturally becomes more better. So we use words like voluntary. I think they mean different things to different people sometimes. Uh, And I would love to hear kind of how you define the word voluntary and how you think about ideas of, yeah, how do we make a society filled with games that are more voluntary?
1: Yeah, well, so this, this concept of trust is really critical to understanding why blockchains are useful. And back in time, when people only interacted or did business with other people that they generally knew, you know, in their village, there were relationships that get built up over time and you have a good way of trusting people and you can do business with those who you trust as the world has grown. And as people are doing more and more business of every kind with total strangers, people who they not only have, they not met, but they never will meet the need to have a way to trust that person becomes really important in modern commerce. There's a lot of, a lot of, payment fraud. There's a lot of, you know, having to trust someone just because they said that they're trustworthy or just on their reputation with other people, which is a decent way to do it. But what crypto and blockchains allow is to actually trust on a mathematical level where there is no human subjectivity to it. You don't have to trust the intentions of anyone. Uh, You can just understand that math and computers have demonstrated provability. A good example of this, you could ask your bank You know how much money does do you have uh, in the bank, and they would tell you a balance. You know across of across all their customers, perhaps you don't know that that's correct, and they don't even know that that's correct. There there may be an administrative mistake. uh, They might be lying to you, but you don't really know. In crypto, you can actually prove a balance of an account. You can prove balances of an aggregate of accounts without having to trust the entity whatsoever. And and in the internet age, this ability to build interactions between people on not only good trust, but perfect trust, mathematically perfect trust, I think really will allow people to explore all sorts of new, interesting ways of interaction that just couldn't have happened before.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that a lot of those methods of interaction have yet to be discovered and invented. And I think that the more experiments we can run, the more likely we are to get solutions. Let's talk about some of your essays on your blog, Money in the State. Uh, You describe the blog as about the human struggle for the separation of money and state and about how Bitcoin is the instrument by which it will happen. When somebody reads that you know, we want to separate money, basically, we want to separate money in the state, a lot of people might get panicky. They might think, oh, that's a horrible idea. Uh, how do you view that? And I think in the interest of nation states, in the near-term future, I think a lot of nation states will actually be embracing Bitcoin and the blockchain much more but I would love to hear you discuss why you chose that tagline and what do you think the future looks like and how do we separate money in the state?
1: Yeah. So I remember like when I was little going to school, one of the, one of the things you learn in school was sort of this period in European history where, where the separation of church and state became kind of a, at first radical, but then very critical and pivotal point in European history. Basically the the point at which the the governing body was detached from sort of the, the spiritual uh, realm. And everyone knows the horrible things that governments did based on you know religious disputes and, and all that kind of thing. And nearly everyone, certainly no one that I've ever talked to disagrees with this, but nearly everyone believes that that was a, a good thing to happen. That, that, yeah, obviously it was important to separate church and state. And I find it interesting that uh, when you talk about separating money from state, something that is even more important than religion, it, it is even more intrinsically involved with everyone's day-to-day lives. Not everyone is religious, but everyone is engaged with money every day. It's an even more important institution. And when when you suggest that that too, perhaps should be separated from state, people recoil in horror and, and they have this, this kind of binary viewpoint that that it was good for church to be separate, but not for money. And they, they don't really, they don't really have a good reason for that. That's just kind of in the same way that like, certainly those who, who back in the day preached that church and state should be separate, that would have been a radical viewpoint. And certainly people were, you know, they literally burned alive for saying such things, but now, you know, fast forward a few hundred years and everyone, everyone believes in that. The same thing is going to happen with money. I mean, fortunately, Bitcoiners aren't being burned alive for advocating this uh, because society's gotten a little more civil, but the same principle applies.
0: And when you're writing posts and when you're writing essays on there, I'd be curious to know what's your thought process for that? Is it something where you encounter a, uh, a struggle or you have a conversation in your daily life and you're just trying to, you know, kind of overcome it and put your thoughts into writing to see what you think about it. What's your creative process like for the essays that you write?
1: Yeah, I, I wish um, I wish there was a lot more current stuff on there. I mean, that, was, that blog, I love the blog and I, I hope to write more there, but it's been a couple of years really since I put much work into it, largely because back when I was writing on that blog, I had time to write. Uh, and now you know, I run Shapeshift, which is more than a full-time job and deserves every moment of my time. I have a a little daughter now as well, which takes a lot of time, and so um, I just Congrats. don't have the time it's to. It's all run. really exciting. Thanks. Yeah, she's she's pretty adorable. So I just don't have the time to put into it, but certainly uh, I, I created it to sort of catalog some of the thinking I was doing about about what I see as a really a movement: the people that are involved in the crypto industry, really trying to pull money and wealth and finance away from coercive monopoly oversight. Uh, I think it's a Immensely critical project, and so I wanted a just an outlet to to express that.
0: And one of your essays there is called "The Importance of Bitcoin Not Being Money." So this is a fascinating post, and I would love to hear about how you came to the conclusion that Bitcoin isn't money after all, and uh, what is it then?
1: Yeah, so this kind of catalogs some of my own development, but like if you go back to some of the first posts. I know that verbatim I say in them that Bitcoin is money. And not only is it money, it's the, the best form of money that's ever been invented. And it is, of course, those things. But the article you're referring to was meant to demonstrate that Bitcoin might be used as money sometimes, but it's actually quite a bit more than that. And it was it was really wrong of, of me and the early uh, proponents to pigeonhole it into this one role. Crypto and blockchain technology are really... Have a, have a really profoundly diverse range of things they can affect. Bitcoin can be used in many different ways. And just calling it money and treating it like that is problematic, largely because doing so results in all sorts of regulatory restrictions placed down on Bitcoin that don't necessarily make sense. So a good example of this, uh, if Bitcoin is sort of legally classified as money, that means that basically crypto assets our, our money. And there's a range of crypto assets ranging from ones that are used frequently in transactions to ones that are used occasionally in transactions to ones that might be used rarely or, or never in transactions. Things like CryptoKitties, which are little digital tokens that exist on the Ethereum blockchain. Technologically speaking, they are nearly indistinguishable from, from Bitcoin tokens, Bitcoin units. They move around the same way. You can accumulate them. They are borderless, they can be used in trade, they have a market price, and they, they're built on all the same kind of blockchain technology. And so if if Bitcoin is legally classified as money, which it sort of was in its early in its early days before a lot of these other developments happened, you get into the thorny situation where now now things like crypto kitties are are they money? And like if if a twelve year old kid sells a crypto kitty to someone on the bus, does he need a money transmission license? You know, in New New York right now, in New York state, it would be illegal to sell a CryptoKitty to your friend because you do not have a, a bit license. This is where you see this amazing technology run right up into the regulatory apparatus. And this is where a lot of the battles are happening. So that article was really trying to say, look, this can be used as money, but we need to be very careful about how this is categorized. And it is not just one thing. It is often just dependent on how it's used.
0: Yeah. And you go on in the essay to say that Bitcoin and other blockchains are fundamentally communication tools between humans, a mechanism for speech. So this is a fascinating point because for everyone listening, it's easy to think that, you know, because we live in the US or wherever we live, maybe we have freedom of speech granted to us by our constitution or bill of rights or whatever the case is, depending on where we're at. However, this is something that oftentimes it's a matter of Do you have the monetary assets to actually secure this? Do you have a group of people around you who love you and will uh, support your story no matter how much you're attacked? It's easy to think that we have freedom of speech until we're forced to secure it or until we're attacked. I would love to hear your thoughts on how a future with more Bitcoin and blockchain technologies might help individuals who don't have a lot of money have more freedom of speech yeah if that makes sense
1: yeah well and i think the one of the main principles here is that if it's an important right that people can can speak out and defend someone else if if you think you know if you think dr martin luther king is a good person and has a good message and you want to support him at least in the us it's it's pretty fair to say that you have a protection of speaking out and expressing that support you know, kind of spending your time advocating for him as, as part of your freedom of speech. I don't understand why the ability to support someone financially isn't isn't the same thing. Whether you are dedicating time or words or something written or something financial to another person, those all seem to me to be very much the same family and, and worthy of protection for the same reason. So just on, on that sense, I think it's important to understand freedom of finance to be very similar if not the same as freedom of expression Um, but also in the bitcoin world when you are sending a bitcoin transaction on just on a technical level how you distinguish that from speech gets really weird because what you're doing is essentially you have you have software on your computer that creates a a message and sends that message out to other computers now, this message is generally, you know, looks like code, but it is meaningful. It is meaningful text that you are causing to be delivered to other people. That that is speech, or, it, or it's so close to to normal speech that you have to at least be paying attention to that issue. Right. So, if you can if you can write an email on your computer and send that digitally to someone else, why can you not write a Bitcoin transaction and send that to to someone else? And so these kind of borders um, are really getting dismantled and really getting fuzzy with the rise of, of crypto because they just they destroy so many of these boundaries that have been set up when these systems didn't exist.
0: And when we think about things like social scoring systems, which have been introduced recently by countries like China, and there are a lot of other nation states I would propose who are following this development quite closely and want to introduce something similar of their own like a fico
1: uh, score in the US
0: <laughs> exactly so how do you see identity tokens or maybe some some other specific technology maybe something you're building at shapeshift how do you see that as being an alternative to a fico score or a social scoring system
1: yeah so one of the you know we get back to this question of trust and i think the economist had a great cover article on one of their pieces a couple years ago about blockchains and it was called, they called it the trust machine because these systems can establish trust in very powerful ways. And one of the ways that that can work well is uh, when it comes to identity. So um, your identity, you know, all the attributes of you, this doesn't just mean your name and address, but like all the, all the specific pieces of data about you, to the extent that you want to share those with other people, they generally are held by some kind of third party that owns them or or possesses them and can see them can delete them can change them and is is essentially the the gatekeeper that's problematic certainly in a dystopian world that becomes a nightmare scenario but even in a non-dystopian world you you get into some really creepy stuff that you know anyone that watches black mirror would be familiar with when you consider what blockchains can do you can you can establish data points on blockchains that no one no one controls other than you and you can share those data points with other people discreetly uh, and only the data points that you want so perhaps a certain company that you want to work with needs two or three of your pieces of data for for their purpose you can share those without giving them access to you know some large government database that has all your information and it prevents these kind of poolings of, of identity that become targets for hackers. You know, there, there's a reason hackers go after you know, like the Social Security Administration or, or Facebook or Gmail or some of these large department stores is because they just have this wealth of personal information they can steal. And before blockchains existed, there wasn't really a good alternative to that because we want, we want a convenient way to digitally transact and, and share information with each other. Blockchains provide a potential path to allow identity to work in a self-sovereign way where you don't need to trust any gatekeeper um, with your own identity. I think that's incredibly powerful and, and hopefully people will care about that as we move further into this age of mass surveillance.
0: Yeah, and I think that's really important to bring up because for Americans especially, we've lived through a long period where the majority of the population has had good times, let's call them, where there haven't been any really big political upheavals or anything that affected... The day to day life of individuals, you know, in a drastic way. That safety and that steady march of slow progress might not continue. So I think it's something that people should just think more about. You know, how much freedom and how much sovereignty do you really have in your life?
1: Here's another example to to really make this point, you know, drive it home. You know, let's say let's say Nazi Germany didn't happen in the '40s, but happened today. If Hitler came to power today in Germany, he could simply Freeze all the financial assets of every single Jew in the country instantly. That type of power over people's lives should not exist. There should not be systems that can do that. And even if 99 years out of 100, it's not abused, when it is abused, it can get so bad so quickly that we as a society should, should put in great effort to prevent that kind of thing from being possible. Crypto allows that.
0: Yeah. And I think too, this is something that has always happened behind the scenes where not many people are aware of it, but there are individuals and businesses where sometimes there will just be a simple accusation against the individual or business and immediately economic life gets almost impossible for that individual. There's huge legal costs heaped on them just to defend themselves from an accusation. Sometimes they are, they're doxxed and this type of, uh, yeah, restoring sovereignty to the individual or small groups and businesses that might have a political activism component is really important, um, I think, for healthy healthy debate. And it's not something that's uh, like, it's not asking a lot to be able to ask questions and not be worried about losing your job or losing your livelihood. Like these are not, <laughs> I-, I feel like these are pretty tame requests <laughs> for sure.
1: Yeah, they, they shouldn't necessarily be that controversial, you know, and they're most most people agree that you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be assumed to be a criminal until you've been convicted through through due process, right? And so the the fact that like a government can charge you with something before having proven anything in court and seize all of your assets just just because they whim it and they say, well, now prove that these assets weren't acquired illegally. They do that all the time through civil asset forfeiture, and it ruins people's lives. If you have your bank accounts frozen. You can't go get a lawyer to to fight for the next two years on your behalf to prove somehow that those assets weren't illegitimate. It's really important to keep that, that balance of power to where individuals can maintain sovereignty over their over their wealth. Now you know, if someone gets convicted of something, that that starts to get a different story. But at least we should all be able to agree that if you're not even convicted, you shouldn't have your your property stolen from you.
0: Agreed. And that's, uh, I think just basic, like th- th- those are good, uh, rules that you can lay down as just like a basic starting point for any economy. And when we talk about economies, a lot of people think that the U S has a free market. However, if you look at the number of regulations or transaction costs, they seem to be increasing at ever increasing rate. So why do you say and assert that there is no free market?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> This is kind of a, a pet issue for me, but um, I mean, first and foremost, you do not have a free market when the most important good in the, in the market, which is money, is centrally planned and controlled. That shouldn't even be a controversial point. So this would mean that basically no, no countries in the world have an, an actual free market. And I, I would say that that's true. Um, but just beyond the, the fact of money being centrally planned and controlled, nobody actually even knows how many regulations there are in the U.S., There are hundreds of thousands or millions of pages of regulation. And when you add federal and state, both of those layers together, it's preposterous. And and every year, thousands and thousands and thousands of new pages of regulations uh, affecting all manner of life come out. And most people don't see this stuff day to day because it kind of happens behind the scenes. Some people, you know, in their job, they might come across uh, one regulation or another. And so they're not really aware at this horrible mess of regulations that has been built up. I think to those of us who are in the in the crypto industry, which is sort of bridging the the technology and financial worlds, we we see this regulation nonstop. I mean, last year we literally as a company spent millions of dollars on lawyers trying to navigate this stuff. To me, that does not that that is not a <laughs> that is not a free market. That is a a statist market, one one in which you are allowed to to transact with other people. Only under every single rule set that the that the government permits, that's not a society that I want to live in, and I, I don't think that's the kind of society that America was meant
0: to be. I completely agree. And there's uh, two quick stories. So, like the first app and business I ever launched, about two weeks after I launched it, I got a cease and desist letter, and you know, sure enough, the company that issued it had a bunch of money to fight it at the time. Back in 2012, I didn't. I didn't have the financial resources to mount a uh, counterattack or persist it, you know, through it. And uh, more recently, as our team here at the mission has grown, you know, we've had to hire someone full-time just to deal with hiring people that work in different states in a remote capacity. That's become so complicated that as a small business with only 10 full-time employees, we have to have somebody full-time to just deal with regulations. That's a bit confusing when you would assume if small businesses are vital to a larger national economy, that the state would want to make it easy for new entrants. Why isn't this something that is just more, you know, a common sense issue where the state makes it easy for small businesses to get started? Why do you think, what you know, what are the real reasons here why it's so difficult? Or is it just uh, inertia at this point?
1: I mean, as much as I like to blame it on the government, the government really is a reflection of the populace under it. And- right. So I think a lot of people just really like to impose their opinions on others by force. So group A thinks that something shouldn't happen. So they lobby and they get a rule passed because they care a lot about it and everyone else cares about it a little bit. And so they win that. And group B cares a lot about a certain a certain item and so they lobby against that and get a rule passed because there wasn't a a organized group to to refute them. And in over decades this this leads to a a society in which every industry has thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of rules. No one really has the power to unwind it. No one wants to spend their lives fighting it because who wants to spend you know, 10 years and, and millions of dollars to, to get a rule unwound? like that? You don't want to spend your, your precious life dealing with that. It's, it's soul crushing. And it, it, I, I don't, it's like a ratcheting function. I don't see it reversing. Right. Which is kind of scary because it's it's also not sustainable. It it, it falls apart at some point. But I, I think largely it just comes down to people realizing that if they desire for the government to set rules on everything and they desire for the government to oversee life, that it will end up overseeing life. And that's really kind of a, a profound ideological question that that people need to answer for themselves. And if if they did that and if they if they desired less government in in the world, then we'd probably see less of this.
0: Wise words. So let's talk a little bit about Shapeshift and your founding of the company, because I think that this is, uh, it's a very interesting company. You got it started back in 2014. And I would love to hear more about the origin stories, especially, you know, why did you choose to go get started on the venture capital path? And, uh, you know, is there an ICO in the future? Is there anything you could share there?
1: So Shapeshift was, you know, like Satoshi Dice, it kind of started as a side project. It was It was an idea that I had because I wanted to convert one digital asset into another easily. I didn't want to spend all afternoon setting up at an exchange and dealing with like order books and deposits and withdrawals. And like, all you know, I didn't want to spend hours on something. I thought these are digital assets. I should be able to snap my finger and turn one into another. And so that's kind of the the genesis of Shapeshift. And um, this was long before Ethereum. This was before there was a diverse ecosystem of different digital assets and tokens. And then when that all started developing, uh, it really started growing very, very fast. You know, At this point, we are about 83 people and we have had to go through a very transformational change over the last 18 months from that early model, the, the one-to-one conversion tool that we built into the new platform that we're creating. This is both sort of a a product pivot into something much bigger and better, but also comes at the comes at the tail of our journey through the the bowels of regulations. And learning what we can and cannot do, or or a better way to say it is learning where the most risky things are that are most likely to destroy us from a regulatory perspective and trying to avoid those so that we can win the war and and not worry necessarily about a specific battle we had to deal with a lot of stuff over the last 18 months. And so we are sort of emerging out of that uh, this summer with the new Shapeshift product. And it will be much more than just a tool to convert one asset into another. It will be an entire digital asset management platform done in a non-custodial way. So probably the best analogy is, is something like a Coinbase, but done without custody, where you maintain control and sovereignty over your own digital assets, but still have a great UX and we we hope this can kind of be a tool for people to build their financial futures with as the world moves from fiat and banks to crypto and blockchains
0: very cool and i would love to hear if you're willing to share some stories about how are you personally handling being ceo of a fast-growing venture-backed company but also facing things where you're i don't know want to say routinely don't want to put words in your mouth but you seem to be attacked in the press occasionally, let's call it occasionally there, by Wall Street Journal and other media outlets. How do you view being attacked by those outlets and handling your role as a CEO? I would imagine it's like pretty challenging if these so called credible media outlets are publishing one version of your story. And, you know, you have this team of 83 people that's growing. And it's hard to build a company culture when the media is saying things that, you would probably dispute as being true. Could you talk a little bit about that struggle and uh, what that's like?
1: Yeah. And it's not the media. It is just the Wall Street Journal.
0: So gotcha. um,
1: <laughs> they, they deserve all due credit for, for stirring this nonsense up. And specifically, it's a few journalists there. Basically, what happened was about a year ago, uh, we had a Wall Street Journal, you know, I want to use air quotes, journalist reach out to us. And he wanted to just learn about the crypto industry generally. Or at least that's what he told us. And, and I, I love that. I mean, I, I try to be an advocate for the industry. I like talking to the press and I like teaching the world about why this stuff is important. So I was, I was happy to chat with him. And he, uh, he came to Denver and we sat down for two hours and had coffee. And it was a, it seemed like a cordial discussion. It was both about crypto, about ShapeShift. And um, then, then about three weeks later, an article drops in the Wall Street Journal basically not not just accusing us but basically stating that that shapeshift was essentially the the money laundering epicenter of the universe and um, if you read the article it paints such a comically villainous picture of us and of me like it, it's clear it's clearly heavily biased and colored like kind of clickbait stuff that you would expect from a lot of media outlets but not necessarily from The Wall Street Journal and the irony of course was that they left out all context of what actually happens. They left out all context of the story of how we have gone from this little startup to a company handling hundreds of millions of dollars and our own development and change that's come along with that and our own learning. And has left out, most importantly, this whole narrative that that crypto is actually transparent and open finance where you can actually learn and understand something cryptographically instead of having to trust people. Compared with... The traditional banking industry, which is routinely caught laundering billions and billions and billions of dollars. There is no year that goes by where several big banks aren't fined uh, huge fines for knowingly laundering money. And then you have this tiny little crypto industry starting up, trying to bring truth and transparency to money, but to do it in a different way that doesn't involve the banks. And then the Wall Street Journal, whose readership, of course, is all those banks comes after us in full force, trying to paint us as this this evil sinister company. It was a really interesting phenomenon because like our our customers know better. So this wasn't like a PR disaster for our customers. It actually sure. was kind of a rallying cry because a lot of people realize that crypto is trying to stand up to an incumbent industry with massive and nearly unlimited power. But what it did do was really damage our credibility among other business partners, you know, non-crypto companies other banks and financial services that we work with as a business that see this headline, they don't necessarily know it any better. They don't understand why you can use blockchains and crypto to disprove the Wall Street Journal's data set. They're just worried because they see a headline from a newspaper that they trust. And so we had, you know, months of trying to talk to these partners. We lost some of them. Bank accounts got shut down. And uh, it was really, it has been quite quite an ordeal, you know, and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on lawyers and PR trying to like respond appropriately to this crap. So yeah, it's on one hand, it's it's really shitty. And on the other hand, this is exactly the kind of thing that I expect as crypto rises out of nowhere to, to take on and challenge the incumbent banking system. Uh, there's going to be a lot more of this stuff and we have to have thick skin about it and keep pressing forward.
0: When you started the company back in 2014, obviously it's a, a learning experience that is very, very challenging. I would love to hear are there any early stories you can share about lessons learned? Basically, what did you learn going from nothing to a large team and transaction values that are, uh, yeah, in the hundreds of millions of dollars range?
1: So, I think probably the, the biggest aggregate theme of lessons is that building a business is so little about the idea, and even sometimes is very little about the product. And it really is just about, interacting with people it's about building an organization of people and that you know that's somewhat simple when it's two or three or four when you get to 20 or fifty or hundred and when your customer base grows and becomes diverse all around the world and spans across time you really have to have an understanding of how to interact with people well and I've been surprised at how little of my time over the last you know year or two that I've gotten to just spend on on let's call it crypto and product stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and how much of it has been spent on just building an organization of people—really, something a skill set that has nothing to do with crypto or the technology. So I, th- I think any entrepreneur, especially in the in the tech world, needs to get an appreciation of that, or at least should be aware of that process. That as you grow your business, it's going to be about people, and if you can if you can learn and adapt to that, you might be all right. But don't go thinking that like some some perfect product and tech is the the sufficient set of conditions for you to be successful.
0: And when you're thinking about or building your own learning routine or professional development routine, is this something that you have time for at all now? Is this something that you make you know, an hour a day to read or an hour a day to catch up on industry events? How do you think about constructing a learning plan for yourself?
1: I think it's largely just about being open to the learning that will happen from everyone around you uh, and to realize that all sorts of assumptions that you hold might not be, might not be correct. And that um, you really need to just do a lot of uh, absorbing. So yeah, I mean, I, I certainly try to read when I can, but largely, I just try to, to to like sincerely and and genuinely listen to people and hear them out and hear their perspective. I used to be someone who, who thought that there was very clearly like, Everything was perfectly objective. You just needed to see it that way. And that there was like one correct point of view, and, and it was your job to get to that. And I've come to learn that like especially as far as humans go, much of what we understand in our brain is really it's it's emotional stuff, it's subjective. And that's not necessarily bad. That's part of just our humanity. We don't all want to be a bunch of objective robots, so let's not try to be. And so just getting that appreciation for both sides of it, both for the logic and the engineering and the objective side and and also the people and the communication and the art and the feelings and the emotion, that's also important. And just appreciating both sides of that I think has been um, a very important lesson.
0: Very cool. And uh, as you think about the future plans for expansion, is uh, this a business that you want to stay focused on building revenue with customers? Is it a business where you foresee needing to raise additional rounds of funding? Are you planning an ICO? Is there anything you can share about the uh, financial future of the company?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're, we, we likely will do another round of financing at some point. We did a series A in early 2017. So that a series B will, will be somewhere on our horizon. We absolutely considered doing an ICO, but the regulatory uncertainty was just too risky. I have my own history with the SEC. And so we have to, and especially just from our position in the market, we have to be very careful and prudent there. And again, we're trying to play the long game. So we, we've we had to give up on a lot of avenues for funding that would have been just absolutely absolutely killer at the time, but we just couldn't do it. So yeah, I mean, I my goal is that we build Shapeshift into a, a massive business that, that helps the world transition from fiat into cryptocurrency. I really think that that'll be one of the great The great narratives and great stories of this generation will be that shift, and I want to build a company that uh, has global reach and influence and can help do that over the long term, and not just become like a new a new bank or a new PayPal that has just you know taken custody of everyone's funds once again, but but builds on the principles of decentralization and builds on the principles of self sovereign finance. That's our goal, and we'll we'll keep moving toward it.
0: So, if Shapeshift is successful in achieving.